0: Suppose, uh, I want to build hotels for the needy, and uh, that's the only requirement, that somebody has to be in genuine need. Uh, I've already found the space, the engineering's all done, it's been approved by the city, and uh, so long as uh, somebody's in need, uh, I just want you to build them a place to, to, to live, and uh, it's fine, like... I'll, I'll fund everything, I'll make sure everything's taken care of, and uh, they put you in charge. You're like, me? Yeah, you, okay. They put you in charge, and all you have to do is uh, is just abide by the rules. Just so long as somebody's actually needy, you can build them a place to stay. And so uh, after, you know, just some time, people are coming to you, They're like, hey, I, you know, I don't have a place to live. And you're like, hey, I've got the answer. And so uh, after a while, that's all fine and good. But then you start to think about things, and you go, I don't actually know how many people are supposed to be coming in here? And how, how much of uh, this has been approved for? And, uh, or when the money's going to run out? Like, he didn't really leave that much um, directions for me. So anyway, you kind of go about things. And then after a while, um, you, you start to realize that uh, maybe it's tapered off a little bit and people don't seem to be coming in with the same kind of needs. And so you, you lower the threshold a little bit and, and people are coming and they're, they're kind of needy, but they're not as needy as they were before. And you're like, hey, that's fine. Everybody in the pool, you're good. And, uh, what you see as you uh, travel around and, and time starts to, to, to move on, you see some other needy hotels. And you're like, hey, that one is really big. That's a lot bigger than my needy hotel. And so you go and, and you're talking to the manager there. And he's like, oh yeah. What we did is we just, we just lowered the, the standards. We said, if you've ever had a need in your life, Uh, we, we want you to come here. And so they've got these great big, uh, additions onto their hotel and it just looks so grand and, and, and nice. And then you're like, man, am I doing something wrong? Um. I, I feel like the directions were pretty clear, anyway. So you, you keep going through things, and it's it's starting to take a long time. You're wondering, like, how long are you going to be in charge of this project because things don't seem to be just quite as clear as they were initially. And then one day on the TV, you see a celebrity come on, and he starts talking about how he's part of the Needy Hotel chains, and he's endorsing it and saying, "Hey, if you want a nice place to live that doesn't cost anything, you too should go to the Needy Hotel." And so now they start making celebrity Needy hotels, and so this thing is really catching like wildfire, and. Uh, It just just seems to be uh, not what it was originally intended to be, okay? So i mashed up a a few different parables for you, but the parable of the the needy hotel, um, Jesus tells it in a couple of different ways, and it's essentially like this. A king goes, and he leaves his stewards in charge of his kingdom, and he says, I'm going to go away, and I'm going to get I'm going to receive a kingdom. I'm going to get authority, essentially, to come and take this over. And when I come back, I just want you to have taken care of things. And he says, but after a long delay, things start to go not as well as they were going before. Like he says, sometimes the 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 um the the the, the managers they started to get drunk with drunkards, and they started to beat the other servants. And so like some things got uh, thrown out the window. And then in other times, he says, like you know, you should be prepared for the return of. The, the master, you should be re- prepared for the return of the king because when he comes, he's gonna call to account like what you've done. And, and so the people that have been kind of mismanaging the, the clear directions of, of the king before he left are gonna be called to account. In uh, Luke chapter 12, um, I'm just gonna read to you real quick. Jesus is, is telling this parable and he, he talks about being ready. And so in, um, in chapter 12, starting in verse 35, he, just, he summarizes it like this. Stay dressed for action. So in the idea is this. Even though there might be a long delay between when Jesus leaves and when he comes back, you should be ready. And what being ready looks like is not staring into the sky like this. What being ready looks like is to be about the task that you were left with in a, in a faithful way. So he says, be dressed, be ready for action, keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. Because if you were coming home from the wedding feast, you were bringing the bride with you to set up your house. And he says, why? Why would you want to be dressed in right? Well, so that you can open the door for him. And once he comes and knocks, blessed are the servants whose master finds them awake or prepared or ready when he comes back. So Jesus says this parable, and um, then Peter asks in verse 41, he, he, he's like, are you saying this parable for us or for everyone? This is an important question. In the, in the parable of the needy hotel, you would say, is this just for the manager of the hotel? Or are you saying this is true for everyone? And Jesus answers with another parable. And the, and the answer to the parable of what Jesus responds with is the answer to Peter's question. So he says, who does this apply to? Like, who's going to be responsible to be ready? Who's going to get held to account for what's happening? Okay? So Jesus responds to them. Well, then who is a faithful and wise manager? That's the answer. Okay? Well, he's answering the question with a question. Well, I'll tell you, The person that I'm talking to is the person who is a faithful and wise manager, the person whom the master will set over his household. He will give them a portion of the food at the proper time. Blessed is the servant when his master uh, comes home, he will find him doing what he told him. Truly I say to you, he will set him over his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and the female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, and the master of the house will come home on a day when he does not expect him. Okay? So here's the idea. You get surprised. And when you're surprised by the return of the master, that makes you not a faithful and good steward. Because you're not living in a way, you're not acting in a way that accords with faithfulness. So you are called somebody that's asleep or not ready. And the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect, at an hour when he does not know, and he will cut him into pieces and put him with the unfaithful. So he says he's going to hold you to account for what it is that you've been given. And, and that steward who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know or did, well, uh, did what was deserved a beating, uh, he will only receive a light beating because he didn't know what he was doing wrong. But nonetheless, there's still a punishment there. So everyone to whom much is given, much of him will be required. Now, Jesus is telling this parable so that we don't lose sight of the fact that even though it might be a long time between first and second advent of Christ, we don't start to be bad managers of the needy hotel. Where well, we make up our own our own ideas about who should be in and who should be out. Why? Because when the manager comes, he's going to reconcile based on what his directions were. So let, let me let me give some more illustration there. If he comes back and outside of the prepared foundation for what was originally intended, there are people living in either tents or some kind of lean-tos that are against the structure, guess what? Those people are on the outside, and they're going to be wrecked. They're going to be outside of what's good and right. And the people that are inside that thought that they were falsely coming in under some different pretense, I can be a celebrity, and he's going to kick those people out of the hotel. So here's the idea. There's a very specific way in which Christ has given us directions, and if we are, if we are faithful to those, we don't have to be fearful about the the foundation giving way. And it will make the distinctions that we're called to make without us having to arbitrarily then draw lines in the sand. So if that makes sense, straight out of the gate, great. If it doesn't, it will make more sense as we get to the text this morning. So we are in Jude, I'll be in verses 17 through 21 uh, this morning. I say 21, it'll probably be 20, but let's pretend it'll be 21. So let me pray for our time in the Word, and uh, we'll get to... um, Father... Pray for um, this morning that you would use this um, time to encourage our, our hearts and our spirits to wake up to what you have laid as the foundation. And that we would be uh, a people who are diligent about the task of building on the foundation that you have set in Christ and in your word. Father, we are distracted with many things, not just in our own lives, but um, in the world around us. There's wars, and there's economic distress, and there's poverty, and there's the pressing needs of the day. And all of those tell us that we need to, um, need to, to, to be busy and anxious and work on a lot of things. So, Father, I just ask that this morning we would see the call to rest on the foundation that's secure as a warm comfort this morning and a welcome. Father, I pray that you keep me from error. that you would use um, your truth and your words and not mine to speak um, to our spirits and build us up this morning. So, Father, equip us with what we do not have, with us eyes to see you it's true and good, ears to hear it, hearts to receive. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Jude, starting in uh, verse 17, says this, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in uh, in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. All right, if you, um, if you haven't noticed, we've we sort of slowed down um, the last couple of weeks. I thought we would get through this series in, in, um, in four weeks, and the ending here has uh, needed to slow down. So he talks at the beginning here, and he makes a transition, because previous to this, he, he opened up and addressed the people, and he, call, he called them beloved, kept, and um, called, excuse me, called, beloved, and kept. And, and then he, he launches into... This longer uh, portion, the the majority of the letter, is about people who are bringing in false teachings, who have worldly ideas, and and they're inserted into this church. And he's been defining what's what's happening, and then also the fruit of what will become of those kinds of people. And in uh, verse 17 here, he makes this transition to but you. So he's, ta- he's been talking about one group of people, and now he's transitioning to readdress the people he started with. He said, you know, I was going to write you this letter about our common salvation and maybe just encourage you in the faith, but there's, there's a more urgent necessity. You need to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. And so about that has been the, the subject of his message, and, and so it seems like maybe he's been concentrating on the enemy for quite a while, but now he turns his attention then to those who are called beloved and kept, and so this this is now meant to be a contrast with what he's been addressing—the false teachers and the, the people who uh, are, are bringing uh, bad fruit or no fruit at all into the congregation. And so he points to the predictions of both Jesus and the apostles themselves, and he says that in the last days scoffers will come. Now um, it, it's important that you get your mind around the the last times or the last days. Uh, I, I've, I've walked through this before, and this is not the intent of this morning, but you live in the last days. Now, whether or that not be, means like the last, last days before Christ returns, and you really are in the last few days, it, it, it refers to a season of time. It is everything in the age of the Spirit. It is everything after Christ has come initially to give a uh, Ability for all nations to come and be part of uh, the covenant. And he's ascended into heaven. And right now, he's reigning until all of his enemies are made a footstool. And we live in what's called the last times. And they're indicative of a few different things. One thing that they're indicative of is it's the age of the Spirit. And we have the age of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit... And the spirit of Antichrist, which is what we were, I introduced last week, and John talks about a lot, but it's always connected to the last times. And so w- don't push that idea off to some other time that you think is coming later. Can I say that again? Don't think that the last times are sometime coming later. They're right now. You are in the last times. Because there's no other, there's nothing else coming until Jesus comes back. Then the day of the Lord, then there's a resurrection, there's a judgment, and then there's eternity, Okay? There's nothing else to come in terms of revelation or in terms of uh, redemption. So 1 John 2.18 says, Children, does it say the last hour is coming? He says, no, it is the last hour. Okay? It is the last hour. And so you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. So he asked the question some 2,000 years ago, roughly. Like, how do you know it's the last hour? Well, because the spirit of Antichrist is here. So if it was here then, it's here now, okay? So there's your indication. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And then he talks about the people that went out from us. Those are either Jews or or Gentiles, people that were mixed in the church, and they went out from, um, from, from among their fellowship, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be plain to all that they are not of us. So he says there's a distinction being made. There's people that are of the Holy Spirit, of the Spirit, and people that are of the Spirit of Antichrist. And whether you think that's like a, an extra derogatory term or not, is I, I could care less. Everybody that belongs to the Spirit of the world is in the Spirit of Antichrist. If you are not in Christ, you are Antichrist, okay? So in the last times, you can only fall into two categories. And so there's a false sense of neutrality, you think that people are born into a neutral category, and at some point in their life, they choose to go left or right, good or bad, antichrist or Christ. That's not true. Everybody is born into, in the age of the Spirit, under the power of this world, into the spirit of the world. And you can be out of that by being born again in Christ. And you are born and filled with the Holy Spirit, and therefore you are in Christ. So in 1 Timothy 4.1 says, Now the Spirit expressly states, he's talking about what the Spirit has revealed. In, it expressly states that in the last times, I'm just trying to really emphasize for you that this is a right now moment, the last times, some will abandon the faith to follow, to follow, excuse me, deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. All right, alluded to this last week. That the doctrines that people believe in the world, the things that are false, they promise fruit, but they don't give. They say, this is what life looks like. You should trust in it. And then you pursue it and it leaves you empty. That is a worldly deceitful doctrine of demons so we live in the age or the season of the last days where the spirit of Antichrist is pulling as many people to hell and defeat as he can. Can you hear that? So you live in the last days, and this is Jude's warning, that in the last days, people will come and they will scoff. And there's a subject of their scoffing. They're not scoffing in general, though they do. Scoffing, you know what that is. Like It's it's like that thing that, well, it's the objection that vocalizes itself, okay? It, it, it is... It doesn't like what's happening, and so it scoffs about something. And so here's what you need to make the connection for. That the scoffing is attached to the last days and what the last days represent. Okay? Scoffing is attached to the last days and what the last days represent. The last days represent something that Jude alluded to last week. He said um, that in the last days... Essentially referring to the day of the Lord, the judgment that was going to come. And he said, when that judgment comes, the Lord's going to come and he's going to judge the, all the ungodly for all of their ungodliness, right? He's ungodly, ungodly, ungodly. He's bringing all of his holy ones with him, myriads and myriads or thousands and thousands, and he's going to bring judgment. That's what happens at the end of the last days. So listen, the scoffing is in relation to the last days and what they represent. What do they represent? that there's only a certain amount of time when judgment is going to come. There's a day fixed when judgment is going to come. And they're scoffing about that, that, that idea, that reality. So I say, guess what? Jesus is coming back and he's gonna, he's gonna have judgment for, for the people that did good and were faithful, for they were good managers, that's gonna be good for them. And if they're waiting his return, they're gonna be happy to see it. For the ungodly, when that happens, they're not gonna be happy to see it. And you go... <laughs> Yeah, right. It's been a long time. And in fact, it looks like the people that are doing the bad stuff aren't getting what they deserve. It looks like, in fact, they're prospering. And so you scoff at the idea that judgment is coming. The scoffing is attached to the return of Christ and what that means that there is a reconciliation, that there is a judgment. So scoffers come. And 2 Peter 3 is the next chapter, which I told you, if you want to jot it down. 2 Peter 2 is essentially all of the letter of Jude in uh, almost the same verbiage, but has a few different nuances. But here in uh, 3, he begins to talk about the same subject here that, that, that Jude is talking about, which is people that are scoffing about the last times. So here, here's what Peter has to say about this. Knowing this, that first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days, and they'll be scoffing, and they're following their own sinful desires. Jude says the same. And they will ask, this is their saying, where is the promise of his coming? Because if I look around, it doesn't look like righteousness and goodness is prevailing. So I, I take my measurement of the world and I say, that doesn't appear to be happening. And not only that, it's been a long time. He says this, forever since the fathers fell asleep, if you, if you want to think about that way, since there were human beings inhabiting the planet and they were dying, everything's continued the same. So how is it that you're saying that there's going to be a judgment on us and that there's going to be a resurrection for the people that have done well? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they have been from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact. Now Peter's turning his attention to what they're saying. They're overlooking something. Well, he says, they're they're overlooking that the heavens, um, which existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. He says, if you're looking at the natural processes and you're saying everything's carrying along as it's always been, you need to know that even that didn't come about by its own natural processes. It was God's word that created it. And he brought the earth out of water and he's sustaining it right now. So whether or not you're looking to uh, evolution or or just the long history of the world or something like that to to give you the idea that that's going to continue on in perpetuity, then you're you're misreading the situation because it was God himself that formed it out of nothing. So it exists by the word of God. And that means, uh, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. He's talking there about the flood, which was one kind of a day of the Lord. The Lord looked at the earth. It was full of wickedness. Wickedness was prevailing. The angels had transgressed the, their proper domain. Men were doing wicked things. And God said, I'm going to bring judgment. And he did. And, and Peter's pointing to that. He said, don't you see that God brings judgment on the world? And he did that in the flood. And he's going to do it again. And they're scoffing about this. And he's saying there's already... There's already precedent for it. It's going to happen. So he says, everybody, uh, it was deluged with water and it perished. But by the same word, the same word that created the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the godly, of the ungodly. <laughs> okay? So he's saying, look, I'm pointing you to the end of the last times. And you're scoffing about this. And at the end of the last times, the earth is, is waiting And it will be judged and it will be refined or renewed as fire. It scorches up everything that is not worthwhile, that is not good. And only what remains is what is godly. So there's two things that are being scoffed about. One is the idea that we will be judged in the flesh. That Christ will come back just as he left. That he lived in the flesh, he'll return in the flesh and judge the deeds of the flesh. That's that's one aspect of scoffing and the other is the amount of time it's taking. He's taking a real long time to get back. And so I just don't know if I can believe that it's going to happen eventually. And so this causes people to get complacent about what they're doing. The church and the unfaithful people, they say, "Well, what's it worth?" because people are living and dying and it doesn't seem like they're really getting anything. Well, part of that day of the Lord is the resurrection to judgment. So Everybody is going to have to account for everything that's been done. He says, they've come and they, they've scoffed and they're following their own ungodly passions. The same thing that Peter says here. He says, literally, they're, they're following their own appetites. The, the word there is soulishness. It has, they are they're not heavenly minded in any sense of the word. They have no spiritual direction. They're just filling what comes naturally to them. And when I say naturally, it means like anything that entices the flesh, that's what they've, they've, they've pursued because they're scoffing about the fact that they'll have to answer for any of it. And Jude goes on to say, It is these who cause divisions. They're worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Okay, He says that the, the people that um, are ungodly, that pursue their own ends, that, uh, that, that don't think there's anything coming for them, he, he says they're worldly, devoid of the Spirit, and there's a contrast there versus godly people who are spiritual or have the Spirit. And so he's going to to, um, give some some examples or how it is that we can see that they are devoid of of the spirit because this is the the kind of division that he's talking about. Now, before I attack this, he says these are the people that are causing divisions. And there's one way to read that. It says you bring in somebody and you know the kind of person that like is just contentious and it's like us versus them and they create factions and like, okay, you know that kind of person? That's one kind of division. Are you tracking with that? Okay, one person's tracking with that. So there's kinds of peoples that are contentious and they bring in an idea and they create a us versus them. It's clicks. okay? That's one kind of divisiveness. Everybody has a little bit of that in them. That's not, Jude has a deeper point to make. There's another kind of division. There's, a, there's an in and an out division. There's a people that are actually included and people that aren't included. There are people that are actually inside the church that actually belong to God and there are people that are outside of it. And he's saying, the people that are worldly, that are devoid of the Spirit, these are divisions. This is the dividing line. Can I say that again? And you say, how do I know who's in or out? Who should be in the needy hotel? Okay? The people that are devoid of the Spirit are not in. There's no ambiguity in this statement. How do I know that? Because he says they're devoid of the Spirit. The Spirit is given to all who are sons of God. You are saved by means of the Spirit. You are in the age of God giving His Spirit to people. That's how He saves you. That's how He seals you. That's how He keeps you. That's how He leads you. That's how you learned. Are you with me? The Spirit is good. Not having the Spirit, not good, okay? Those people that are worldly, that love the world, that serve the world, that are, as John puts it, antichrist, that's the division, He's saying they are the dividing line between in and out. Romans 16 says this, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrines you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve the Lord, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So so Paul has said the same thing, essentially this. Contentious people come in and they have a a way of speaking that causes you to think that maybe they're right about something, but if you align with them, they're devoid of the Spirit and they're going to lead you uh, uh, into destruction. The Spirit is the dividing line. The Spirit is the dividing line. Jesus is the dividing line. The Word of God is the dividing line and that's why they're all tied together. That's why they're all tied together in this statement. You are seeing worldly people brought into the church under the, under the idea that isn't it better to just make sure that we're not discluding people who we don't know about? It's the ambiguity that, that gets rested on. Well, I'm not really sure. That's, that is a bad thing. It feels like the right thing, but it's the wrong thing. To say, I don't really know. Because what Jude is telling you is that you do know, it's been said. The lines have already been drawn. The problem is you're ignoring the line and you're wanting to include more people than you ought to. You're not responsible for drawing lines. God help you if you are because they're already laid. We just sang it. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than he's already said? He's not going to say. There's nothing new to add. The lines and distinctions have been made. Those with the Spirit belong, those without do not. He says, everyone that loves the world and serves the world does not love God. First John 2.15, do not love the world or anything in the world. Because if anyone loves the world, the love of the, the Father is not in him. If you love the world, then you can't love God. Why? Because the, the, the desires of the flesh and the world are contrary to what God tells you to do. You can't follow his word and also love the world. You can't. That's the ambiguity that you're trying to find, to build a little lean-to structure against the hotel. And the the, the foundation has defined the line. 1 John 4, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. I, I told you this last week. He said, test the spirits, whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He's come in the flesh, and he will come in the flesh. So the scoffing about whether or not we're going to be judged for what is happening, what's done in the flesh, for people that say, well, you know, we all mess up, and therefore, it doesn't really matter. It's all grace. No. Listen, you've been called out of sin to be holy, to the best that God gives you the ability to do that by the directions he's given you in his word. You will not do that this side of heaven, but you ought to try. Okay? Wow, I'm so far off my notes. Okay, so to be devoid of the Spirit is to, to not be saved at all. To be devoid of the Spirit is to walk in air, to follow the Spirit of the world. It's worldly people, not godly. 1 Corinthians 2.14 makes this distinction even more Explicit, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Without the Holy Spirit, you're going to follow what seems right to you, and even the things that are right don't seem right to you, because they're spiritually discerned. It's the Holy Spirit that helps you to see the truth and to bring you into those things, to make you desire them and to follow them. James 3.15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and what? demonic. The things in the world that tell you what you could have, and you follow those, are the doctrines of demons. Can you, I I hope this dot to dot is connecting. The spirit of Antichrist is the spirit of the world, and following that is demonic, so that you don't have to have any ambiguity, whether or not, I'm not sure, whether that is a good thing or or not. Okay, moving on. (laughs) He says, this being Jude now, He talks about people being ungodly. They're devoid of the Spirit, and he's saying that is the distinction. They're worldly. They follow their own desires, and they cause divisions in among you. They are the dividing line between what's good and bad, what's right and wrong, what's in and out. Then he goes again. He reiterates, but you, in verse 20, but you, beloved, build yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. So, in contrast to the people that are following their own thoughts, they're following the spirit of the world, he says you ought to do something else. You build yourself up in the faith, which sounds foreign to our ears because we're, we're, we are allergic to the idea of work in relation to God, okay? So I'll say this in the best way I can. And maybe there's a better way to say it, but this is the best one I have, okay? God's peace and his, 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 um, his love... To you, is not opposed to effort; it's opposed to earning. Okay, if if I say because because I love my wife and she loves me, that um, that I don't I don't have to do anything to show that. I don't I, now now that would be saying I have to do things. If I if I said I, I will do things so that she will love me, that's earning, right? But. If I say, I love her and she loves me, and I'm going to do whatever I can to show that to her, that's giving effort, but that's not saying I've earned it. Are you, are you tracking with that? In, in the sense of God's love for you, his mercy, his grace, you can't earn that, but God is not opposed to your effort towards pursuing him. Okay? So don't get the idea that I'm saying you have to earn your salvation, but what Jude's telling you here is that you, you ought to be doing something, efforting towards building yourself up in the faith. Um, I, I do have this scripture. I'll put it up here in just a second. But in, um, so, so how is it that we're, we're built up in the faith? Let's talk about this for just a minute. This is a, a collective command, and it's individual. It is first collective, but it only comes about when individually we apply it. He's saying, you collective, the church, because, let me back up for a second. He's just said, there's divisions among you. There's people that are in and out. He's not saying you personally have division in you. He's saying you, the church, there are people that are in amongst you who are out, who shouldn't be in with you. You're you're allowing them in, but you ought not to. And we should be about the task of building the wall on the foundation. And so he's saying, look, the the divisions are, are collective. And now he's saying, so build yourself up in the faith. And you do that by building the church up on the word of God that's already been laid, on the gospel that's already been given, on Christ, who is the, the cornerstone and the foundation. Okay? So by building yourself on that, you're building up the church. But that doesn't get accomplished and what? Well, unless individually you're also building yourself up in the faith. So how do you do that? Well, you, you do that primarily by the Word of God. The Word of God. The Word of God. Some of you have come in and you haven't interacted with the Word of God since last week, since last Sunday. You come in here malnourished, underfed, and you have no appetite for the word of God. And um, Paul expresses it like this. You, you ought to be mature. You should be growing up in the faith. You should be getting to the deeper things of God. But instead, you're right here at this immature level, and you only have milk. And can I please have some cookies with that too? And so you come in here, and you consume only milk. And I shouldn't have to remind you every week that Christ is the foundation and the only way to be forgiven. You should be growing up into maturity. And we do that by working on the word and discerning what's right and what's wrong based on the word and by following the spirit. And so um, I wish I could give credit, but I, can't, I don't know who said it. But the, the, the Chinese church has a saying and it says, no Bible, no breakfast. No Bible, no breakfast. If you don't read the word of God, you don't eat. Some of you would starve, right? A lot of us would starve. If you're not grounded in the word of God, you don't have any way to build yourself up in the faith. In Ephesians, in Paul's, in Paul's doxology, in his, in, his, in his blessing as he's going, he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up in the faith. The word of God is what we are to rely on. To be built up in the faith is to be, to be feeding on the word, to be nourished by the word, to grow in the word. Now, allow me, I'm sorry, to hunt for this for just a second. Here it is. In 1 Corinthians 3, talks about how we should be building. And he's going to connect all of these dots all together for you very helpfully. It's not something I've made up. I didn't come up with my own chart and scheme to figure this out so that you would listen to what I have to say. So just track with Paul's um, teaching here in 1 Corinthians He's going to relate the idea of judgment, being um, connected to what you do in this world, how you build on um, the foundation that's been given. So 1 Corinthians 3, let each one take care how he builds upon it. That is the foundation that's laid. In in verse 10, he said, the foundation is uh, laid by the apostles and the prophets. And Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Okay? So, Let me just stop for a second. If you are doing something that you think is good and helpful, but it's not on the foundation of Jesus Christ, or what you see laid down in the Word of God from the apostles, you might be doing something that seems to be helpful or good, but it's not what God has for you to do. I'll qualify that in just a second. Don't get distracted or complacent. So if anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest because of the day. That's capitalized there because that's referring to the day of the Lord, the final day of the Lord, okay? The final day of the Lord will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Remember in in 2 Peter 3 where he said, the heavens and earth are now stored up for fire, and they're going to be revealed on what kind of work has been done. So what he's saying here is there's a foundation that's been laid and God has come to us through Christ and said, I'm leaving you with instructions to build the needy hotel, the church. I've laid the foundation. You don't have to worry about funding for it. You don't have to worry about whether or not the foundation will support it. The foundation will support it. Your problem is if you go outside of the foundation and you start constructing things for people that don't or ought not to be part of that hotel. And you don't have to worry about telling them, hey, I I I have this screening application and I don't think you're in, because that sounds like a very you arbitrary kind of distinction. Guess what? If they walk up to the hotel and we've only built, we've only built on the foundation, the divisions are already there. The walls are already constructed. There's no ambiguity about who's in or who's out or how you get in or how you get out. Do you are you tracking with that? I'm yelling at people. I don't know if I mean to. Okay? So he says, what you're doing in your life is constructing. You're building. Some people are doing things with gold and silver and precious stones, and some people are building with wood, hay, and straw. And the wood, hay, and straw will not withstand fire. It just won't. And he says, when God comes, think about the manager returning. When he comes back, he's going to test what kind of work you've done. And if it survives that, it's good work. You've built on the foundation with what's appropriate, with what's right. Okay? And he says if it survives that, you get a reward because you've done something that's lasted through the judgment. But guess what? If you've constructed on top of things superficial structures, you've done these little goofy carports and lean-tos against the real structure, which is the church then you're, that stuff's going to be burned up, and you'll have lost it. It will be um, if that work anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself is saved only as through fire. If you if you um, if your house catches on fire and you live and you lose everything, you're saved as one through the fire. Do you, are you seeing what's happening? This let me translate this real short. You can waste your life. You can waste your life building on things that don't matter or building in a way that does not matter. How you build matters as much as what you build matters as much as what you build on, okay? The foundation has to be built on. If you build outside of that, you can, you can build some impressive structures. You can put them up real quick. They can have a nice facade. But ultimately, things that aren't built on a good foundation reveal the cracks, and problems, and the further away you get from the foundation, the higher up you build, it's really impressive from the outside, but you walk in, and you start looking at it, and there's like cracks in the drywall, and, and stuff's not like not sitting, like you, you set a cup down on the floor and it'll like fall over, because it's not level. Those are kinds of problems that reveal themselves. That's not the flooring guy's fault. That's not the drywaller's fault. It's the fault of build, building not on a foundation that will last. Guys, for a while, there was a period where the church got distracted and found some new ways to build, and we built some impressive edifices, but they weren't on the foundation. And then when stuff happens, Jesus says this parable really condensed. He says, a wise man hears my words, and he builds on the rock, and a foolish builder will build on the sand, and the rains come, and it They come both to the house on the rock and to the house on the sand, but the house on the sand collapses and great is that fall. You you can build on the sand, but the collapse will be immense. God will graciously from time to time shake the church so that we get back to building on the foundation and it may not be as glamorous, may not go up as quick, may not be as impressive to people, but it's the right thing. And the right thing is founded on Christ as the foundation and the cornerstone, and the church being built up on that. Right after this, Paul is going to be talking about how you build on this foundation. Do you not know that you are, again, that's a plural, you are. You are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple that applies both individually and collectively. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. But you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And God is building us up together. Peter says it like this. We're, we're, we're spiritual living stones being built up as a house to, to house the Holy Spirit of God. So building on the foundation or building on ideas of the world. That's, that's really what's being presented here. The walls that are built on the foundation must, must be the, di- the dividing line, to, to use Jude's idea. So that if we focus on those, we don't have to focus on the other things. If, you, if, you're, if we're worried about whether or not we should be calling certain sins out or, or, or making designations, a church that is afraid to make designations is one who has not made the first designation, which is where did the foundation stone get laid? And focusing on that. If we're fixated on other things, we've lost the plot. So he says this doing this, being built up in your faith, is to be grounded on the word of God, which is Christ and him as the only reconciliation. And then he says, praying in the spirit. I don't have time for this this morning, but I do have time for the concise explanation of this. Praying in the spirit is in contrast to not having the spirit or pray, praying in the flesh. To pray, praying after your own desires, your own ideas, your own whims, or praying in, with what accords with asking for what God wants. Father, your will be done here as on earth as in heaven, right? That's, that's to pray in the Spirit. Um, so so when, we, when we do pray, we, uh, we say, you know, I, I have some ideas. God, help me, found me on what it is that you've put me to, uh, to work on here, but help me do it in a way that accords with your plan and your, your trajectory and help me not to step outside of your will. That's praying according to the Spirit and then surrendering yourself to, to that end. It, it doesn't mean praying in a different language or something like that, which sometimes this is taken to mean that He, he just means don't pray in a fleshly way. James says like you, you don't have because you don't ask because when you do ask, you ask for selfish motives. you're motivated by the world. you're motivated by your own desires, so that would not be praying according to the spirit. And then here's his final word: then keeping yourself in the love of God. keeping y- y- yourself and the love of God. We'll use this as the uh, completion of our, our work next week. So this might again tempt us to think that he's telling us you need to work for something to get to God's love. And he's not saying that. He, God is not asking you to do anything he's not already provided for. He's not asking you to, to uh, accomplish something that he's not already done. He's asking, and John explains it like this, it's abiding, it's remaining in something that's already been provided. If I say, keep yourself in the sunshine, did I tell you to make the sunshine? If I say, keep yourself in the sunshine because it'll warm you up, it's good for you. Keep yourself in the light, okay? Keep yourself in a place that, that is helpful, it gives you vitamin D. Like, Did I tell you that you have to reach into space and create billions of trillions of potential energy to make a sunshine. No, but you could go outside and keep yourself in the sunshine. When he says keep yourself in the love of God, he says God is already pouring out his love, and the way that you remain in that is to remain in what God has provided. He's not asking you to earn God's love. He says just remain in it. It's already been given to you in Christ. And how do we do that? Well, anybody that has the Spirit is kept in the love of God. Anybody that follows Christ's Word is in the love of God. So how do I do that? Well, Follow Christ. Be diligently awaiting his return. That's the last part of that verse. So now we go back to Jesus' parable at the beginning. And Peter's question, are you talking to us, just the disciples? Are you just talking to the disciples because we're in charge or is everybody in charge? And he says, the wise and faithful steward is the one who's awake and who is anticipating the arrival of the king. And you don't anticipate the arrival of the king, one, if you're not expecting it, but two, if you're not doing what you ought to do. So how is it that you keep yourself in the love of God? is to be anticipating the arrival of the one. So, so be, a, be about somebody that's efforting, not trying to earn, but keeping yourself in the love of God. Awaiting his return because it means good things for you if you're awake. Are you with me? You should be. I, I, I might lose my voice after this one. Okay this should be an encouragement to you. We, we've talked for four weeks now about a lot of negative things. And, and some of you have wondered, like, how do I stand in the, midst of, in the midst of a world that's like chaos and disorder and like so much darkness? And, and he didn't say, you go make sure and get rid of all that. He's focused you in on the one thing that stands in opposition to all of that which is to build on the foundation. And so long as you're building on that foundation, you've nothing to worry about. And God will accomplish all that he means to accomplish because the gates of hell will not stand against the uh, triumphing, encroaching gates of heaven. So I'm just going to leave that there. Let me pray for us this morning. We're going to go to a time of communion.